uh, let me open us in prayer, um, I'll, and then I'll recap uh, briefly what we talked about last week, read the passage, and then we'll jump into the second half of chapter 5. But let's pray. Gracious God, we do come this day to uh, worship and glorify you and to acknowledge how um, unlike us you are, that uh, we are a sinful people uh, whose hearts are bent toward evil, um, but you are a God of justice who has not... Um, uh, ignored our sin, but created a way to um, atone for that sin. That uh, you didn't just love us um, when you, after you reconciled us to yourself, but while we were still your uh, declared enemies, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Um, and in his death, you showed your great love uh, for us. And by that uh, act of Christ, um, we can now stand um, before you, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, being justified by faith in him and his finished work. But even more, as we saw last week, uh, we now have peace with you. Uh, we have been reconciled uh, with you. That we are no longer enemies, but now um, uh, members of your household with access uh, to you and the ability to stand in your presence. Lord, we thank you for uh, the assurance that you give us uh, of this, that we know that you loved us, um, not only because of the internal testimony of your spirit, um, uh, pouring out your love into our hearts, but even more through the external work of Christ on the cross that we can point to this objective in time act that physically showed your love for us. And so uh, we can have uh, great joy in this life uh, even in the midst of uh, suffering because uh, we have uh, joy in, in the work that you've done for us in the past, and we can have joy and expectation of the glorious future that um, you've held before us uh, that we can cling to in certain hope. Lord, we uh, thank you um, for Christ and his work and pray that you will give us insight um, into that work uh, as we complete chapter 5 uh, this morning. Uh, bless us um, richly uh, through your word. Help us uh, see the supremacy of Christ, to see the triumph of um, eternal life over the entry of sin and death into this world. Um, give us your spirit to instruct us in all things concerning our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week um, we covered uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. And in that, we saw um, Paul starting to um, unfold the, the benefits of justification. And the chief benefit, or one of the chief benefits we saw last week was now, um, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
Um, and because of this peace, um, we have access uh, before him through faith into this grace in which we stand. And, and the result of this reconciliation, and, and one of the words that's repeated throughout verses 1 and 11, is this, this great joy that we have. And it even concludes in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Um, and in thinking of this, um, it's one of those weeks where I was supposed to be thinking toward this week, but I kept thinking about last week. <laughs> um, and uh, I was really struck, um, uh, and um, I guess uh, God put it in, in my mind one morning, um, that uh, in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we are still, still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, so in this idea that um, Christ died for us while we are still enemies, I was thinking a lot about how um, when Christ says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, um, uh, I was thinking about Christ did exactly that thing. I don't know that I've ever like thought of it in those terms, but um, when Christ calls us to to demonstrate um, love, not just to those who love us, but to demonstrate love towards those who are enemies and those who are persecute us, that's exactly what Christ did. Um, he died for his enemies, uh, gave his life for his enemies. He's on that cross praying for those who are actively crucifying. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, so uh, it just um, really, I think it demonstrates the, the extensive nature of God's love. And it's one of the things I've always um, appreciated about Easter liturgies that has um, the congregation saying the words, crucify them, crucify them, because that is our position uh, relative to the cross, that we are the crucifiers, and but Christ is there dying for those who are responsible for his death and doing so out of his great love for them. So um, hopefully you came out of last week greatly encouraged by this picture of God's love for us. Um, and I want to continue as we read in chapter 5 to emphasize that this chapter is about assurance. Like, how do we know that um, Christ has secured eternal life for us? Um, and last week we saw uh, Paul pointing to the cross of Christ as the focal point of how we can be assured in our faith. Our faith isn't in ourselves. Our faith is in his um, completed work on the cross. And so, therefore, on the basis of what Christ has done, we can trust in that not yet aspect of our salvation, that he will bring it to its fruition. We can be assured of something that hasn't happened yet. Um, it's, you know, and as we talked about, hope isn't just an abstract maybe. Um, hope in the New Testament, and as Paul's using it, is confidence in something that, uh, confidence in something that God has promised and, and knowing that it will happen even though it hasn't happened yet. All right, well, let me, I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 5 for us because verse 12 starts with a therefore, <laughs> as always. Um, uh, you can see how this is just a long argument <laughs> uh, which Paul builds and concludes on each um, prior conclusion. 
So um, uh, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And now the passage we'll be focusing on this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it in our hearts and minds as we discuss it together this morning. All right. Um, so you could, uh, the, in your um, ESV, the, the text is broken, broken up into three paragraphs, and that's roughly kind of uh, how I'd like to kind of work through it, looking at these three different um, paragraphs. Um, so looking at the first paragraph in verses 12 through 14, what is Paul trying to say here concerning humanity's relationship to Adam? I mean, it's kind of weird. He starts with the first half of comparison, um, just as. We don't get the so also that we see later on. So it's almost like some people have described it as he starts to make his comparison and then kind of pauses because he needs to make a point 
about Adam before he continues with the comparison, as we'll see later, just as, so also. Um, just as Adam, so also Christ. Um, but, but first, so what is he, he, he trying to emphasize here in verses 12 through 14 about Adam, Adam's connection to the universality of sin and death and how that relates to all of us? Here, Ronnie. Or his offspring, like, you know, he, he is our, uh, you know, we are all in Adam, in a sense. And because we're in Adam, we are in this world that, um, that sin and death have entered. So through Adam entered sin, and through sin came death. So it's this kind of chain. Um, and so he's, he's emphasizing Adam as um, our head, in, in whom we've come into this reality of the certainty of sinfulness and, and death in the human experience. Good. What else would we say about um, what Paul's saying here in terms of Adam and uh, our relationship to sin and death? Yeah, so let's uh, let's think about that. That so he's got this um, kind of strange sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So what's Paul saying there? What is that? Why why go into this period focused between Adam and the giving of the law and like using that? as his example to establish this principle he wants to establish. What does it mean that sin is not counted where there is no law? <laughs> Rob, take a stab. Right, like if you think of like what, what happens right after the fall, like we get our first murder. <laughs> and God clearly takes notice what Cain does to Abel. Um, and, and clearly what Cain does to Abel is wrong, even though there has not yet been given that express command, thou shall not kill. So what Paul's talking about here isn't that there was an absence of sin and an absence of, of guilt. Um, so clearly there, there was present sin and guilt, even though there wasn't commandments given. So what's he trying to say, though, about, like, why focus on this period? Uh, the covenant to 
Yeah, so, it, and it's this idea, like, literally that, um, uh, you know, um, through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, it's, it's this, you know, establishing the universality of sin and death uh, because of our connection to our, our, you know, our connection to Adam. Like, and, and one of the things Paul's doing in, it, in this passage is like he's using the, the, the universality of death to establish the universality of the promise of eternal life. Like just as like we say, like, you know, what's certain in life? Death. <laughs> like you can count on it. And he's saying you can count on eternal life in that same way. And, and death is, is, is um, death is the result of sin. Um, death isn't natural. To, like we've, we've made death natural because it is the, our experience. We've never experienced a deathless world. But death has come because of the penalty attached to sin. Um, and so the, in, in one sense, even though there wasn't an express law, clearly everybody who, who's living, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Um, like, so that's demonstrating that all those people are under the reign of sin and death in this period. There was no law. <laughs> so they couldn't throw him up on charges and put him in prison, but everybody knew he was acting immorally. And it's the same type of thing here where, yeah, there was no law where we could count this offense, this offense, this offense, but they were all doing wrong. <laughs> I actually, uh, Brian, that's great. That was a great example. The one I was thinking of was actually more personal. <laughs> um, so the, the Barry children growing up, my siblings and I, we were major league trespassers. Like, you know, we didn't play in our yard. We played in the neighborhood. <laughs> we skateboarded on the Balls driveway. driveway. Uh, we swam in the Atkinson swimming pool. We jumped on the McCord's trampoline. We hunted squirrels everywhere. Hide and seek could range over a four or five block radius, um, and a few flower gardens were probably desecrated by hiding places. Like, we're major league trespasses, uh, um, but the trespass, we didn't get in trouble for it until the express command came from my parents, don't go in their yard, or the express command came from the one set of neighbors, there was a cow pasture, um, kind of catty corner, uh, cow and horse pasture. Um, uh, around and and after we climbed the fence a few enough times, uh, they strung a new line of barbed wire across the top and hung a sign on it: "No trespassing. <laughs> Violators will be prosecuted." Like um, it's that that idea. Like it's it's wasn't it's not that we weren't trespassing before; we were. But now there's an explicit command given, and that's what um, we get that again. Um, in verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. 
Like, so the law doesn't come in to do away with the trespass or suddenly turn innocent into trespass. We weren't innocent before. Like we knew where the boundaries of our yard were. Like we cut this on this side of the invisible line. We didn't cut on this side of the invisible line unless someone paid me to do it. Um, you know, like we knew where the boundaries were, um, but once there was given an explicit command, thou shall not go into the ball's yard, or actually the explicit command, thou shall not uh, uh, damn the stream that's adjacent to the ball's yard, causing the ball's yard to flood and erode, uh, which did happen. <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it heightens the offense that we're already doing. And as Brian said, it takes something that was immoral and now gives it the, the added clear violating of an express commandment. Um, and, and what Paul is doing here, he's establishing the headship of Adam over the human race and, and that headship of Adam over the human race has, has, has brought sin and death into the world. So as we see this, so he starts by establishing kind of who Adam is and the effects of Adam's choices corporately. Like it's not Adam sinned and Adam was individually punished for his sin. Adam's sin had corporate effects. Like, and we have this solidaric connection to Adam. So we are all in Adam. Solidaire? No, actually, it, it comes from John Murray, the <laughs> Scottish Presbyterian professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, so he uses solidaric. Tim Keller uses corporate. Uh, but both are getting to the same idea. Like his choice, Adam's choice to eat from the, the eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had effects on all of us. The, his, his sin um, affected all of humanity. So through one man's act, all have sinned. And that's what Paul is trying to establish here. Absolutely, and, the, and as we'll see as this passage comes out, the solidaric act, rather than be something we're offended by, is something we should be hope in because it's this, the solidaric act of the second Adam is the only way we can have a pathway to eternal life. If we all relied on our, our you know, ruthless individualism, like, well, that's not what I would have done. I should have been the one to make the choice for myself, not Adam um, choosing and, and me um, suffering the effects of another's choice. As, as Chris says, we, 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 we um, demonstrate our accord with Adam's act by our continued acts of sinning. Um, but two, if, if we all just want to be, be 
held accountable for our own individual and have, have no solidaric connection to Adam, then how can we have any solidaric connection to the second Adam? Because that's how salvation comes through this, the work of a, of a second Adam, as Paul's setting it up here. So, which gets in a great transition into this, my next question, how is Adam a type of Christ? So that's the word or phrase. Um, like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And by the comparison that follows, he's clearly thinking of Jesus Christ here. The one man Adam, the one man Jesus Christ. So in what way did was Adam a type of Christ? Yeah, we have to think more of the kind of um, biblical use of type, like um, how things in the Old Testament were types of realities that were come to be expressed in the New. Um, so there's some similarity, but there's also this great disconnect, like in the way we often think of shadows and substance, like the type um, and and. And, you know, the things that typify the realities that are coming in the new. So um, the word type uh, denotes those Old Testament persons, institutions, or events that have a divinely intended function of prefiguring the eschatological age inaugurated by Christ. It is in this sense that Adam is a type of Christ. The universal impact of his one act prefigures the universal impact of Christ's act. The similarity between the two consists in the fact that an act of each is considered to have determinative significance for those who belong to each. So just as all in Adam die as a result of their sin in Adam, all in Christ are delivered uh, through the righteousness and the act of obedience of Christ. So it's, you know, establishing the, the type of the first head of humanity, which issued in forth in sin and death, and the second head of humanity, this new man, Christ, who brings in obedience and righteousness.
I mean, absolutely, Christ is doing what Adam failed to do. Like, and Adam had one command to obey, and he chose to disobey um, and, and brought death. Um, like, and he had one command to obey, knowing that obeying that command would lead to life. Um, Jesus had lots of commands. You know, he, he's coming under the law, so, um, and, but he's obeying all those commands, even though his obedience, he knows, if I obey, I get death. <laughs> um, you know, so it, it's, he is, as the second Adam, in a, he's not in a garden. Like, he, he's, he's in a wilderness. Like, he's in um, a world that has been um, corrupted by sin, and, and he's coming in, and he is um, taking on the acts. The first Adam was supposed to perform in vastly different circumstances, and, and he's doing those things. For us, again, this is why this section is flowing out of the, what we talked about last week in the first half of chapter 5, that it's out of his love for us that even while we were sinners and at enmity with God, Christ died for us. He, he took on that, um, that, that probationary role that Adam was supposed to perform for us to, in order to bring life and through Christ's obedience, even though it meant Christ's death, he did it to bring life to us. And whereas Adam brought in um, um, death because of, of his one sin, Christ comes in, and through his obedience, he's bringing in life that covers an enormity of sins. Like, again, like, you know, and that's why, to go back to what, what, Cynthia's saying, like, he, it's a, he's like he wants to make a comparison, but he's emphasizing it's, it's a contrast. These are not equivalent figures. Um, you know, one is vastly superior to the other. Um, this Christ, the second Adam, is vastly superior to the first Adam. Um, yes, Teresa. Yeah, two heads, you can kind of think of them as two heads of humanity. Like, you know, the one head that, that brings in sin and death and corruption, and then this other one whose entry into life and whose, through whose perfect obedience, and notice that's a word that Paul is stressing here, that Christ actively obeyed, where Adam is, is um, distinguished by his act of disobedience, his act of disobedience brought in sin and death, Christ's act of obedience brings in eternal life. Uh, Landon.
Yeah, and I think we see a little of that here with, with this idea, um, verse 17, for if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So it's, it's like death reigned, and it's the, the opposite isn't life reigned, but, but we reign in the life um, you know, that Christ has done. Like it, and, and it's this super abundance, and that's the word that's, um, you know, in, in verse 20, grace abounded all the more. It's, it's super abounded is the word in the Greek. Like, it's, it's abounded exponentially. Like, and, and it's, you know, Christ, as, as you say, like, Adam was alive, but, but Christ is the one who, who brings life. Um, so I saw another hand. So we've kind of jumped into my next question, but are, what are some of the ways that we see how Christ's work being superior to that of Adam. So he, he's, he's created this kind of um, parallel, um, you know, but emphasizing they're not equivalent. Um, it's more, uh, as uh, John Stott says, he's describing antitheses, not, um, not equivalence. So in, in a comparison, it is a contrast. Um, so what are some of the ways they're different? Yeah, so, yeah, so we, we the, you know, one has brought in death, and, and literally death reigns, and we'll see this coming into the, to the next um, chapter, it, you know, it's um, talking about uh, the next chapter is going to unfold on this theme, like, how can you, you know, so, you know, it asks this question, shall we continue in sin? And it's like, how can you continue in sin? The reign of death and sin has been broken. Like, um, a new reality has come into being because of Christ. So, like, so why are you going to continue to live as if death still reigns um, when in reality... Uh, a new thing has come. You can reign in life. Um, so there's this contrast through one man's act, death enters the world. Through the other man's act, we can, can reign in life. Okay, so with the first part, um, it, it's distinguishing, so many died through one man's trespass, um, but much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So what he's contrasting there is the, the difference between Adam's act, which is a trespass, and you can kind of think Adam's act is, is fundamentally an expression of, of human pride and self-assertion. You know, he sees it's pleasing to the eye. I want it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to eat it. It's an act of selfishness. 
Whereas Christ's act is an act of grace. It's an act of a, a gift. It's taking something, not doing something um, for selfish purposes, but as we saw again last week, it's an act of self-sacrifice. So as Paul, again, he's making this comparison, but he wants us to, to be clear uh, and, and not to lower Christ to Adam's level, but to see how Christ is much more. <laughs> like, he, the, you know, the act of the trespass, uh, the act of the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is much better, whereas Adam's act is out of sinful self-assertion, um, you know, selfishness. Christ's act is out of loving, freely given, grace, undeserved mercy to people um, that he is accomplishing through self-sacrifice. Good. What else will we say, or how else are Adam and Christ different? Or how else does Paul say <laughs> Adam and Christ are different? Yeah, that Adam's act brought condemnation. And again, there's this idea that um, condemnation is, is, has this sense that you know, uh, the penalty fits the crime. So like the penalty is, you know, is equivalent to the crime. Like, you know, you, to use my example of childhood again, you go into the cow field, <laughs> you're grounded for a week. Like uh, an express penalty is is put onto the offense, and like you know, it there's an equivalency there. Whereas the act of and the the difference, it, you know, one act of sin led to condemnation. What Christ is doing, and, and it's this, this language he's using here, um, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So like one at man, one sin brought condemnation. But Christ brings justification for many sins. And again, like think of how many sins. Like, I mean, just take yourself. <laughs> how many sins have you committed today, <laughs> the past week, the past month, your lifetime? multiplied by everybody who ever has or ever will exist. Like, and, and that starts giving you a sense that Christ's act of righteousness and his act of justification is, is far greater than, than what, what Adam's done. Like, uh, and um, the way I always think about this uh, in describing like the sufficiency of Christ's uh, redemptive act, like, it's sufficient to, to cover this world and every other, like if there were a thousand other worlds like it with people like us, it, it would be sufficient for that as well. Like it, that's how much greater Christ's act of, of grace and justification is than Adam's one act of sinning.
we don't want uh, our hearts to change. Our, our lives are, are new, and, and we have life in Christ, and so our desires are different. We don't want to do that, but, but there's this idea that, that, that we can't do what we want. The, the other, um, one of the, the differences comparison we make is verse 17, this idea of rage, uh, this idea of being subject to death, uh, but then reigning in life. So this idea of Yeah, um, so two things there. So the first, like, um, you're, you're hitting exactly what, what Paul is, is trying to establish here. And again, like, think chapter 5, one of the big points of chapter 5 is how do we know? Like, how do, can we be assured that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient? How can the act of one man cover the, you know, all of my sin and all of my, the other sins of everyone else who believes in that one man. Like, how is that, that possible? And it's the idea, like, his grace superabounds. It's, it's, we can't, as you say, sin our way out. That's, and, and that's why the logic flows in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Or what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? No, <laughs> is Paul's emphatic answer to that. So it's not to say, oh, well, because I can't sin my way out, I should keep sinning. No, because as Paul's going to say in chapter 6, you've been transformed. Like the reign of sin and death has been broken. Like you know, you're no longer under, those, under that reign. You are now, one, in a position to your second point, to, to reign in life. Like you, know, you are now put in a position where you're able not to sin. Like, so the old, uh, in the old fourfold, Thomas Boston's four, humanity in fourfold state, Adam was in the state of, he was able to sin. Um, we're in the state, and as unredeemed uh, people, are in the state of not able not to sin. Um, what Christ does in this life is he, he breaks the power of that, that. And now we're in a position where we're able not to sin, um, and then in eternity we will we will not be able to sin. So the fourfold state of humanity, and and Christ has broken the power of sin and death, and now has put us in a position where we can reign with Him in life. What a tremendous difference that is between Adam. I've always sinned, so I should have death. Yeah, that he is, he's, he's justified us. Like, he accounts us as righteous and tra starts this process of transforming us. And that's chapter 6 is going to start getting into this eternal reality of Christ's justification um, brings in present benefits for transforming our relationship to sin. Like, we are no longer subjects to it. Um, we now are in a position where sin is still present, 
It's still an active force in our life, but it's not in control. Like, it's the regime has been kicked out of <laughs> office. They might still have a, a guerrilla army operating in the woods that makes attacks on us, but it no longer rules over us, is what Paul is going to be saying. Yeah, so I would say, like, the difference is how we are in Adam and how we are in Christ. Um, we're in Adam by physical descent. Um, we're in Christ by that spiritual connection, receiving what he's done by faith. And that's what he's saying, like, he's adding that qualifier in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So there's this, it, it's, it's not, um, so I, I'm a little like, it's not that Christ's act is less than, than Adam's act because, um, uh, yeah, because Adam's act kind of defaults, whereas Christ's act has this, the, the, you said election, but Paul here is emphasizing the reception. Those two things go together. But, but you know, that it's, it's not, and, and the, to emphasize, the problem or the divide isn't because there's any insufficiency in the act itself. Um, it, it's not like, um, you know, uh, they do this every year at the World Series, like steal a base, steal a taco, so like, you know, if somebody steals a base in the World Series, everybody can go to Taco Bell on a certain day and get a free taco. Um, but that, that ad always has like the little fine print, while quantities last, <laughs> limited supply. Like, so it's not, there's no, um, you know, there's no footnote qualifier that like, it's, it's, it's not because there's some kind of insufficiency in Christ atoning work um, it, to explain why Yeah, and you could see why somebody might say that. I mean, because verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So he has this kind of universal kind of language in here, but it's the all is qualified. Um, 
and it's qualified by that idea of whereas an atom, we're an atom just because of the fact we're human beings descended from him. We're in Christ by the result of, of receiving his work through faith. Um, and Paul's going to work out you know, later on like why some are created for um, salvation and while some are created for destruction. This has to do with the purpose of God, but it doesn't have to do with the insufficiency of, of Christ's saving work. Um, let me, uh, like I had John Murray, I like the way um, he said that here. Um, hold on. Um, if I can find my notes. Um, oh, where is it? Let me just look up John Murray. That's what, this is why I opened the book, because I knew I wouldn't be able to find it in my notes. <laughs> this is what problems when my notes get beyond three pages. I cease to be able to find anything. Um, so, um, we must ask the question, is it Pauline to posit universal salvation? The answer must be decisively negative, and he gives lots of verses that talk about how people are condemned. Hence, we cannot interpret the apodosis, that's the second half of the comparison, in verse in, in 18 in the sense of inclusive universalism. And it is consistent with sound canons of interpretation to assume a restrictive implication. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, Paul says, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. As the context will demonstrate, the apostles here dealing with the resurrection to life with those who are Christ's and will be raised at his coming. The all of the second clause is therefore restrictive in a way that the all in the first clause is not. In like manner, in Romans 5.18, we may and must recognize a restriction in the all men of the apodosis that is not present in the all men of the protasis. And sorry for the, the biblical jargon there. Um, what the apostle is interested in showing is not the numerical extent of those who are justified as identical with the numerical extent of those condemned, but the parallel that obtains between the way of condemnation and the way of justification. It is the modus operandi that is in view. All who are condemned, and this includes the whole human race, are condemned because of the one trespass of Adam. All who are justified are justified because of the righteousness of Christ. So it's so yeah, they're they're not numerically equivalent, but that's not his point here isn't to establish them as numerically equivalent. His, his, um, he's not saying that Christ just undoes what Adam does. He's saying grace superabounds, and Christ's work is vastly superior to the work of Adam and is there to be received by all men. Yeah, that the the undoing, like absolutely, like like. Even if the drunk crashes twenty cars, the man only restores one. The man restores the one is still greater. Or I, I was thinking, uh, uh, because I've been baking more recently, but like like if you like the other day, I accidentally like I didn't read the instructions right, and I was supposed to put the salt over here. Instead, I mixed it in with this, and it'd be like. 
through the one mistake, like I've corrupted the, the whole however much flour was, was in that thing. Like, so that one act messed up the whole bunch. How much greater would it be if someone could come in and remove all the salt, like uncorrupt it? That act is so much greater. As you say, undoing the, the damage that the, is like the unintentional act of a drunkard can be done undone by the purposeful, creative act of the, the mechanic. And it's that idea here. It's the powerful, creative act of God in the redemption of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul can say, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's what he's, again, the point of this passage is to, to give us assurance. Like, how can we know that Christ's righteousness um, can, can come to, to everyone who puts their faith in Christ? And he's saying, just as death is a certainty accomplished by the act of one man, how much more is the justification that comes through the free gift and grace of Jesus Christ? He's saying that this eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord is just as certain and even more certain than death itself. Um, and and to, to, to take Brian's point, like it's the idea like, you know, it's, it's undoing, and as we think about Adam's work, well, yeah, all died, but not all die. Like, if we think of that idea, like, Christ undoes Adam's work. So, like, not everybody is in Adam um, at the last day. Like, we're, we're all in Adam in this life, but there's coming a time where we are only in Christ. And, and because of that, Christ has undone the damage that sin and death has done to corporate humanity. Like, it has made life. Like, um, I once tried in, in a horrible painting, which I'm really thankful doesn't exist anymore, tried to, like, capture life breaking into to death. Um, it was terrible. <laughs> I'm not even going to describe it to you. It's so bad. Um, but it was when I was in college and, and, you know, a new Christian, and I was trying to, like, wrap my head around the, the glory and, and beauty of, of Christ's redemptive. It was an abstract painting, by the way, which I should never try to do anything abstract. Um, I, I'm a, I've learned I'm a concrete person. <laughs> I, I don't deal in abstracts. I need concrete examples, which is why I like history <laughs> and not philosophy. Um, but, but that's what Paul's doing here. He's like showing that that our assurance, our hope, our trust in Christ is based on these objective realities. And just as we, we know the act of one man, Adam, has brought sin and death in the world, we can know that the act of a, one who was much greater than Adam, the second Adam, brings life and, and life eternally through this grace that superabounds. Um, so, uh, you know, so it is like, you know, um, this emphasis on, you know, like we, we talked about last week, the beauty of the love demonstrated on the cross of Christ. And now he's going into like how that, 
how that works. Like, how can we trust in the act of one man? And, and we know through the act of one man brought sin and death, so we can trust that the act of the second man, Jesus Christ, brings life and life eternally. All right, well, let me uh, close us in prayer. God, we thank you for um, the super abounding grace that you have uh, given to us and allowed us to receive um, this righteousness, this gift of righteousness that allows us to reign in life. Um, and Lord, uh, this does, um, even as we emphasized last week, continues that expectation of joy and this certain knowledge of that he who has began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And, th and that completion is eternal life uh, with you and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in heaven. And Lord, help us, uh, even as we gather together uh, this morning in your presence, that we can have a foretaste of that um, heavenly joy, um, of that uh, heavenly reality of, um, that's, that's been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, um, that even now we can have certain knowledge of the things to come because of Christ's past work on the cross and our hope in his future coming. And we do pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.